Welcome to the Littler Workplace Policy Institute podcast, insider briefings on the latest legislative and regulatory developments affecting employers. Hello, I'm Bruce Sarche, a Littler shareholder in Sacramento, California, and a member of the Workplace Policy Institute, or WPI. WPI is dedicated to making sure that policymakers hear the voice of employers as they consider workplace policy legislation and regulations. And joining me today is Emily Patajo, a WPI colleague and shareholder in our Century City office. Hello, Bruce. I'm happy to be here to discuss proposed laws and regulations being considered in California. Not all of our listeners may know this, but February 21st marked the last day for California legislatures to propose new bills for the rest of this legislative session. That's right. They get everything on the table early this year, and it gets pretty wild pretty quickly. Because this deadline just passed, we have many pending bills to review for our listeners. The 2020 class of bills cover a lot of ground, from potential changes to the much-discussed worker classification test instituted in AB5 last year, to anti-discrimination measures and leaves of absence amendments. Speaking of AB5, I'll bet many of our listeners would like to know what has happened with this law since it passed last year. Well, not only has this measure been heavily debated, it has been the source of some pushback and even a few lawsuits. Yes, it certainly has. As a recap, AB5 wrote into law the ABC test from the California Supreme Court's Dynamics decision. Employers and labor groups alike are questioning the new, more stringent worker classification test. This controversy has given rise to a series of bills to roll back AB5 or create carve-outs from its requirements. That's right, Bruce. For example, AB1928 seeks to repeal AB5 completely and return the law to the Borello test. That's right. Let me remind our listeners that the Borello test involved a highly flexible analysis of numerous factors. It focused primarily on whether the alleged employer had a right to control the manner and means of the alleged employee's work, but also included a list of nine additional factors, including whether the employer could fire the employee at will and whether the parties had agreed upon an independent contractor relationship. The state assembly is also considering another form of attack on AB5. ACA 19 proposes a state constitutional amendment to return California to the Borrello standard. ACA 19, if adopted, would let California voters decide whether to amend the state constitution and enshrine the Borrello test. Meanwhile, SB 1039 offers up yet a third approach to scrapping AB5 and addressing worker classification issues differently. Though SB 1039 is still largely a placeholder bill, it shows the legislature's intent to create a third classification of workers under a modern framework that would allow for independent work for those who voluntarily choose it, with some safety protections. Of course, it's unclear yet whether any of these three sort of sweeping approaches will be realized, but at least some members of the legislature are concerned about the practical ramifications for employers and workers under AB5. While those measures play out, more than 30 other bills seek to carve out exemptions from AB5 for various industries, employers, or workers. 
Stop it. More than 30? Yes. More than 30 bills are pending, which would make changes to last year's blockbuster AB5. For example, AB1925 would broaden the list of employers exempt from the ABC test to include small businesses. Under the bill, small businesses would include businesses that are independently owned and operated, not dominant in their field, with fewer than 100 employees, and with average gross receipts of 15 million or less over the previous three years. Yes, and another set of bills is aimed at clarifying classification issues in the franchise world. Both SB 967 and AB 2489 would prohibit franchisees from being deemed employees of a franchisor and would require that they be considered independent contractors unless a court determines that specified requirements are met. And then, Bruce, there is a flurry of proposals seeking to exempt more specific type of workers from AB 5. SB 990 and AB 2822 would exempt transportation network companies, which California defines as companies that provide transportation services using an online application, like cell phone apps, to connect drivers for hire with passengers. So this measure would apply to popular ride-sharing apps, which have expressed significant concerns about AB 5. Absolutely. Yet the list of proposed exceptions goes on and on and on. SB 868 would exempt freelance journalists, while SB 867 and AB 2796 would eliminate the January 1st, 2021 sunset for the current exception for newspaper distributors, leaving it intact indefinitely. Well, turning to the legal field, SB 875 and AB 2979 would exempt court interpreters and translators, while AB 3136 would exempt certified shorthand reporters. And a series of bills would apply to various healthcare professionals, including physical therapists, pharmacists, and marriage and family therapists. Companion House and Senate bills would also exempt health facilities that contract with companies that employ healthcare providers who provide services to patients at those facilities. Additional bills would exempt musicians and music industry professionals, barbers, cosmetologists, and referees or umpires for independent youth sports organizations. And finally, three proposals, SB 975, AB 2572, and AB 2823 would exempt several jobs that fall under the Public Resources Code, like professional foresters, timber operators, licensed geologists, geophysicists, surveyors, contractors, engineers, and pest control operators, as well as landscape architects and construction managers. My goodness, it feels to me like every single job in the state of California is going to Sacramento this spring and saying, hey, we need a carve-out from AB5. It's a list of proposed exemptions just goes on and on. Now, it's important to remember, listeners, that many of these bills take the approach, not that this person who's doing this job would automatically be an independent contractor, but rather 
that we revert to the former test, the Borello test, and use that test to determine their status rather than the new ABC test of AB5. Got it. But we've been going on and on and on for several minutes now, and we have talked about nothing other than AB5 and independent contractor status. There must be more employment-related bills being considered this year in Sacramento. Right you are, Bruce. Many, many more. So let's dig in. First, SB850, the Fair Scheduling Act of 2020. Bruce, are you game to tackle this one? Yes, I am, and I will be happy to do so. This is one to watch. After all the AB5 clarification bills, SB850 is another blockbuster. This would apply to grocery store, retail store, and restaurant employers and would impose what are called predictable scheduling requirements, similar to those seen in city ordinances in San Francisco and Emeryville. The measure would mandate that employers in these industries provide work schedules to employees at least seven calendar days before the first shift in that schedule. Employers would have to pay modification pay to employees if shifts are canceled, moved, or added within that one-week time period. The modification pay varies depending on the length of notice provided. If the change takes place more than 24 hours before the shift, the employee is entitled to modification pay equal to or greater than one hour of their regular rate of pay. But if less than 24 hours notice is given, the employer must pay modification pay for half of the shift's scheduled hours. The modification pay would be in addition to any compensation for actual hours worked and would also apply for on-call shifts if the employee is not required to report to work. And even though certain exceptions apply, for instance, if operations are down because of some cause outside the employer's control, or if employees agree to trade shifts, this bill is an expensive proposition for employers. Aside from modification pay, employers that violate the bill would face significant penalties. All right, well, on that sober note, let's move on to some notable pending anti-discrimination measures. I'll start it off with SB 973, which will sound familiar to our listeners. SB 973 would require that California employers with 100 or more employees that are required to file an employer information report form, or EEO-1, to the EEOC, gather and submit data on the wages they pay to employees, grouped by gender, race, and ethnicity. Similar bills have been introduced and debated in California in recent years. Oh, yes. I remember these bills, and the current version is substantially the same as prior iterations. These bills aim to better understand pay gaps for women and people of color that may exist due to unconscious biases or historic inequities by requiring large employers to track, maintain, and report wage patterns by gender and race. Yeah, that's right. The bill lists several categories of wage data that would be required to be kept and reported, including salary bands for which data would need to be grouped individually. A few examples are executive-level officials and first- or mid-level managers 
all the way through operatives, laborers, and service staff. Wow, that would be an extensive set of data. And the bill would require employers to retain this information for 10 years. Yes, although there is some protection for employees' privacy. The bill would mandate that employers and the Division of Labor Standards Enforcement, DLSE, maintain the confidentiality of any individually identifiable information within the wage data. We'll see if SB 973 in 2020 fares any better than its predecessors. Our next bill, AB 2355, concerns workplace protections for medical cannabis users and should also interest California employers. I should say so. What is AB 2355 proposing exactly, Emily? Under AB 2355, it would be unlawful for an employer to discriminate against an individual because of their status as a qualified medical cannabis patient or holder of an identification card allowing such use. The bill would grant applicants and employees who use medical cannabis the same rights to reasonable accommodation and the associated interactive process as are offered workers who are prescribed other legal drugs subject to certain requirements, of course. The measure includes some critical exceptions as well. Employers could refuse to hire qualified patients or could terminate them, for example, if retaining them could reasonably cause the employer to violate federal law or lose a monetary or licensing-related benefit. The bill would exempt employers that require all employees and job applicants to be drug and alcohol-free for legitimate safety reasons under federal or state law. And AB 2355 would not prevent employers from taking action against an employee who is using medical cannabis or is impaired while at work during work hours. There's a lot to digest there, Bruce, but I think we should keep moving. Let's briefly discuss a couple of bills that concern more technical issues for employment claims. Next up is AB 1947. This bill would extend time to file a complaint of discriminatory dismissal or other prohibited employer discrimination with the DLSE from six months to one year. It would also allow a court to grant reasonable attorney's fees to a successful plaintiff on such a retaliation claim. Yes, so we've seen other bills attempt to extend that retaliation six-month deadline. Last year, Governor Newsom vetoed a bill that would have stretched it to two years. He pointed out that the two-year period was inconsistent with other retaliation statutes of limitations in the Labor Code, which are set to one year. Perhaps AB 1947 is the response to that veto and may yet succeed. That may be, and while we keep an eye on that, employers should also be aware of AB 2947, which would alter the standard of proof for plaintiffs raising employment claims under the Fair Employment and Housing Act, otherwise sometimes referred to as FIHA. Wait a minute, changing the standard of proof? Yes, you heard me right. AB 2947 would recognize a motivating factor theory for plaintiffs to prove a case under FIHA. Plaintiffs could prove intentional discrimination by showing that a protected characteristic, such as race, 
disability or sexual orientation was a motivating factor in the action or decision, even though other factors may have also motivated the action or decision. The measure states that this intentional discrimination can be proved by direct or circumstantial evidence. Well, that would shake things up for sure. And speaking of shaking things up, Emily, do you remember last year when AB 749 added restrictions on when employers could include no rehire provisions in settlement agreements? Yes, of course. That new law took effect January 1st, 2020, and provided that such a term could be included in a settlement agreement only if the employer made a good faith determination that the person engaged in sexual harassment or assault. Well, a pending bill, AB 2143, would amend that brand new law just a bit. Ooh, tell me more. <laughs> Will do. AB 2143 would clarify that a no rehire provision could be included if the employer determined that the settling aggrieved person engaged in any criminal conduct, not just sexual harassment or sexual assault. And it would also tweak the definition of aggrieved person to mean not just any person who filed a claim against the employer, but to mean a person who filed such a claim in good faith. Well, it sounds like those amendments might narrow the scope of the no rehire restriction a bit then. Could be beneficial for employers that are trying to weed out bad apples. Bruce, do you want to tell us about our next bill, AB 648? Sure, that's the Wellness Program Protection Act. It has a few privacy provisions, but a main takeaway for employers today is that businesses would not be able to require employees to participate in a wellness program or to retaliate against those who choose to opt out. AB 648 would also require employers to post an explanation of their wellness programs on their website in a form employees can easily understand, and employers would be banned from collecting unnecessary personal information or releasing personal information, except in specific circumstances, as part of the wellness program. And in addition to all of these bills, we can't forget that some California agencies are in the process of promulgating regulations interpreting existing law. In fact, the California Fair Employment and Housing Council is working on proposed guidance concerning the types of pre-employment inquiries that would be permissible. The proposed regulations touch several topics, but for example, state that pre-hire and scheduling inquiries cannot be used to ascertain an applicant's religion, disability, or medical condition. The regulations also identify several recruiting techniques that would constitute age discrimination such as a maximum experience limitation, a requirement that candidates be digital natives, or a requirement that candidates maintain a college-affiliated email address. In current form, the regulations prohibit technology that screens out older candidates. Okay, let's shift gears now and talk about some bills concerning leaves of absence. Always a hot topic in California. Good idea, especially since lawmakers are considering some very big changes. Let's start with AB 196, which carried over from last year, but doesn't seem to have much momentum at this time. 
It would revise the formula used for determining benefits available in the Family Temporary Disability Insurance Program. The current rate of wage replacement for a family leave is set at 60% or 70% of wages, depending on the situation. AB 196 proposes to move that to 100% wage replacement. And that's just the start of it. In addition to AB 196, in AB 2992, the Assembly has also proposed a pretty major overhaul of the California Family Rights Act, also sometimes referred to as CIFRA. Okay, what's the story with AB 2922? Well, as many listeners will know, the CIFRA grants eligible employees up to 12 work weeks of protected family and medical leave. The law right now includes an exception for employers that have less than 50 employees within 75 miles of the work site where a particular employee seeking leave works. AB 2992 would remove that exception. So it would get rid of what we call the small employer exception, and then would all employers in California be obligated to provide those same 12 weeks off? No, not exactly. Under the bill, employers with 50 or more employees within 75 miles of the worksite at issue would need to provide those same 12 weeks of leave. But AB 2992 would require an employer to provide six work weeks of leave if the employer has at least 20, but not more than 49, employees within the 75-mile radius. And then smaller employers with at least one employee, but not more than 19 employees in that radius, would be obligated to provide two work weeks of leave. My goodness, that reminds me of the minimum wage law, which we actually have two minimum wages in California, one for employers of 25 or fewer, and one for employers of 25 or more. And this has led to a lot of questions for employers who fluctuate between 24 and 26 or 20 and 30 employees. What minimum wage do they need to pay? We're going to see the same potential issues here under AB 2992 if we have these three tiers of employer size driving the leave that is required. And from what I'm seeing, AB 2992 has a lot more in store as well. It would offer employees the ability to take leave not only to care for a parent or spouse with a serious health condition, but also to care for an ill child or for any person living in the household with a relationship that is substantially similar to that of a spouse or a child. In addition, the bill would entitle employees to bereavement leave for the death of a child, spouse, sibling, or again, for any other member of the household with a relationship substantially similar to that of a child or spouse. While I don't want to get farther into the weeds on the rest of this one bill, it's worth noting, too, that it would expand workplace protections for employees affected by crimes or abuse. So, for example, it would authorize leave for an employee to help a household member to seek relief, like a TRO. Very interesting. And going back to bereavement leave, there's another bill pending, AB 2999, which would also offer such leave to California employees. That bill would require employers to allow up to 10 days leave within three months 
of the death of a spouse, child, parent, sibling, grandparent, grandchild, or domestic partner. Before we move on, I also want to mention AB 1844, which would add to the list of acceptable reasons for an employee to take paid sick leave under California's mandatory sick leave law. Right now, employees may take accrued sick leave for, among other things, the diagnosis, care, or treatment of a health condition, or for preventative care for themselves or a family member. Yes, and... AB 1844 would extend that right to cover the diagnosis, care, and treatment of a behavioral health concern as well. The measure seeks to encourage people to take care of their mental health and break down the stigma surrounding behavioral health treatment. Well, Emily, I know it's hard to believe, but we still have a number of significant bills to cover. Listeners, hang in there. There's a couple of labor-related proposals that we really shouldn't overlook. What have you got for us, Bruce? Well, one measure that carried over from last year, AB 418, it would add a communications privilege between union agents and covered employees. It's like the one we see with the attorney-client privilege. A union agent could not be compelled to disclose confidential communications with a covered employee or former employee unless the employee has already made significant disclosures. Privileged conversations would be those where the union representative was acting as an agent for the employee's interests. A very unusual bill, arguably the first of its kind in the country, if I recall. And then there's AB 3240, which concerns strike pay and benefits. Yeah, I remember that one from last year. Right. AB 3240 prohibits employers with 25 or more employees from terminating, reducing, or modifying their contribution to an employee's health care coverage while the employee is engaged in a lawful strike. It also would make strike pay non-taxable income, and it would entitle employees to collect unemployment benefits even if they are receiving strike pay during a strike, lockout, or labor dispute. Okay, well, how about we turn to PAGA, the Private Attorney General's Act, a perennial California favorite. Ah, yes, PAGA, always a good time. But maybe some new legislation could add clarity for employers? There's always hope every year, and this year we've got AB 2530, which actually could help employers understand and cure alleged violations. Well, that sounds promising. What's the scoop? The bill would require aggrieved employees, when they submit the mandatory PAGA notice to the agency and employer, to include information about which subdivision of the labor code the claim is brought under, and if the employer has a right to cure the alleged violation in question, the notice must state that the employer has 33 days to do so. SB 1129 would also offer welcome relief for employers facing PAGA claims, specifically concerning wage statement violations. We're all ears, Emily. Those claims are tricky and can get expensive very quickly. And oftentimes they just involve little innocent ministerial mistakes without any real harm to any employees. SB 1129 seems to recognize all of those concerns and proposes several fixes. For example, employees could not sue before providing notice 
by certified mail to the employer of the alleged wage statement violation. Under the bill, the employer would then have 65 days to cure the violation. If the employer fully remedies the violation, the employee would have no right of action for damages, injunctive relief, or civil or statutory penalties. And importantly, SB 1129 also caps PAGA penalties for certain violations. PAGA imposes a default civil penalty for labor code violations, which applies unless there is a civil penalty specifically set forth in a particular subsection. Now, this bill states that if aggrieved employees do not suffer actual economic or physical harm, the aggregate total civil penalty under that default provision could not exceed $5,000. It also clarifies that a violation means each type of alleged violation without reference to the number of employees involved or the number of pay periods during which the alleged violation occurred. We probably shouldn't hold our breath on these PAGA bills, but hope springs eternal. One thing we are running out of, though, is time. Agreed. Before we go, let's give our patient listeners who have hung in there and are still with us a little peek into the other types of bills introduced this year, as well as some more pending regulations. There are quite a few measures and regulations in the pipeline concerning workplace health and safety. For example, the Department of Industrial Relations has a nearly final rule to help prevent heat illness in indoor work areas. We also are anxiously awaiting final workplace violence prevention regulations. While such regulations already exist for the healthcare industry, pending rules would establish similar standards for employers generally. And speaking of healthcare workers, AB 2537 would require employers to create illness and injury prevention programs to protect direct patient care workers from exposure to opioids. And AB 2966 would promote transparency in the proceedings of the Occupational Safety and Health Standards Board by requiring that agency to post written notice and an agenda at least 30 days prior to a meeting. Information about proposed orders or standards would need to be posted online within one day following a meeting. Along with those potential health and safety rules, employers can expect to see regulations finalized later this year interpreting the California Consumer Privacy Act, or CCPA. The Attorney General released updated proposed regulations in February. The regulations provide guidance on the various notices businesses must display to consumers under the CCPA about the collection and use of their personal information. The proposed rules also regulate several business practices, such as those related to handling consumer requests made pursuant to the CCPA for verifying the identity of the consumer making those requests and for the treatment of personal information of minors. It's a very detailed set of regulations, but of course, the CCPA is a very detailed law. And relatedly, there are several pending privacy-related bills and a few measures specific to workers' compensation issues as well. One set of bills, AB 2041 and SB 422, would offer tax credits to employers that hire workers between the ages of 18 and 25 in specific situations. AB 2041, for example, would authorize a credit for micro-businesses 
those with 10 or fewer employees, that hire workers aged 18 to 25 who have never previously worked for any employer. Finally, I'll toss out a quick reminder that the State Department of the Treasury finalized rulemaking in October 2019 for the California Secure Choice Program, commonly known as CalSAVERS. The regulations implement the CalSAVERS Retirement Savings Program and cover essential definitions, registration deadlines and instructions, employer duties, employee responsibilities, and default elections. Basically, any private employer with five or more employees that does not already have a tax-qualified retirement plan is an eligible employer for the new retirement program. Yeah, and this CalSAVERS program has been a little bit of a sleeper, but we can't forget about it. In fact, the June 30th, 2020 deadline is rapidly approaching for employers with more than 100 employees who have to register for this program. Smaller employers will have more time, although it's not too early to start thinking about the impact of this CalSAVERS program. Bruce, we have covered so many topics today. It's going to be another wild year in California. Lawmakers have until May 29th to get these bills passed by their House of Origin and move them on to the second chamber for consideration. We'll continue to monitor the situation and, as always, we'll be sure to report back with any noteworthy progress on these topics. For now, many thanks to you, our listeners. Indeed. Thanks, all, and stay tuned to Littler's Workplace Policy Institute. We'll provide further updates and information regarding state and local workplace regulatory and legislative developments. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.